Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I'm working on my next book. And in this season, season four, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to explore how we can translate decarbonization aspiration into action. So today's guest, uh, Vicki Holub, who is president and CEO of Occidental, is just so exciting to talk to, and you will soon hear why. Occidental is one of the largest oil producers in the U.S., a leading producer in the offshore Gulf of Mexico and the Permian and DJ basins. Oxy also has a subsidiary, Oxychem, which you'll hear a little bit about in our conversation today, a leading North American chemical company. Vicki received her BS in mineral engineering from the University of Alabama, and her career began at City Services, which was later acquired by Oxy. Um, Oxy has assets in the US, Middle East, North Africa, and has uh, various midstream operations as well. While at Oxy, uh, Vicki has held uh, various vice president positions um, before becoming CEO in May of 2016. You can learn more about Vicki in our show notes. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Vicki Holub. Vicki Holub, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, Vicki, I'm a big fan of your leadership. And one of the things I found so interesting is that you've described Oxy as in, in the context of the energy transition as a carbon management business. I thought that was quite clever when you first started talking about that publicly a couple of years ago. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at this way of thinking and how um, your employees are like, how do you engage your employees in this kind of paradigm? Yeah, I think it was pretty easy for us to come to that conclusion because we've been using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery for more than 40 years. And and CO2 is a different type of material. I mean, it's you know, it's it's can be a gas, can be a liquid. So it's a different sort of product to handle. And so it takes an expertise uh, to to do it and to do it safely and properly. And and since we've been doing that and and managing it so well on the surface and our our uh, reservoir teams and subsurface teams have been managing it as it processed through the reservoir. And now we've we're expanding that to help others manage their CO2. So ultimately it just felt like a natural for us to leverage all that experience and that infrastructure and, and our ability to help others manage and reduce their CO2. So becoming a carbon management company is really a better description of what we're ultimately going to be because we'll still be doing CO2 in oil uh, reservoirs, but we'll also be sequestering and we'll be converting it to products as well. Well, I love how you relate this idea of traditional oil and gas business, but really in the context of the energy transition, how people like to think about sequestering carbon. As you're imagining Oxy's future and what the executive team of Oxy's future looks like, what do aspiring leaders, what sort of characteristics and traits and expertise do you think they need to be developing for whatever this next chapter looks like? Well, I think the interesting thing about having gone through the pandemic now is that we need to to be more careful and caring with our employees. And, and also, uh, even though we, we feel like we've done a good job with the communities that we operate, we still think that's critically important, too. So any leaders within Oxy or any company that wants to be successful in this energy transition and going forward in the world really needs to have leaders who care. 
who care about the employees and who care about the world in which we operate, because we need to protect the world for our children and our children's children and and for those to come. And I think in addition to being a, a caring leader, we it has to be um, a person who has a vision of how Oxy can get to that point and to be able to make the, the planet a better place while also delivering value for our shareholders. And that's not an easy thing to do when you uh-huh. talk about energy transition. So that vision has to be there. And then the ability to, uh, to execute on that vision and executing on that vision means you have to be pretty innovative and creative, but you also have to be flexible because what, where you think you might go and how you think you might get there might not work out. So we've found that there, we've had to make some course corrections along the way, and we've had to go down a path that we didn't expect to have to go down. And, and sometimes we've, um, we've dur- turned a corner that it, we didn't expect to see. So all of those things are critically important to, to be a leader in, in what we're going to be facing over the next, uh, over the coming decades. Well, I, I love to hear you say that because that's a leader that I want to work for, the, the kind of leader that you're describing. And it brings to mind, I, I recently had two senators on my podcast, on this podcast, a senators Cassidy and Higginlooper, so that we could demonstrate in real time that, that we could cross the political divide. Um, and I asked Senator Higginlooper, what do oil and gas companies need to do to, to actually allow Democrats to support them? And interestingly, Senator Higginlooper said they need to, to be more like Oxy. They need to actually convey a sense of urgency about addressing climate. And I think you just conveyed that in the way you think about leadership. So I'm wondering if you have um, a thought or an example about what in Oxy's emerging leadership and people makes you confident that Oxy can succeed going into the future? I, I can tell you, we've been just been through some major tests. We um, prior to our big acquisition of Anadarko, we were actually starting the conversion to SAP. So we had an organization that was already undertaking a, a big commitment for transformation. Then we bought Anadarko, and then we went through that integration. And going through that process was was very very challenging because of the the impact on people and and the processes and and all that you have to to make happen during that, as you know. And it, and it wasn't a small one. It was a big one. And so it, we came out of that. And then seven months later, or less than seven months later, we're going into the pandemic. And then we saw the curves that hit our teams from the pandemic with the uh, Omicron variant coming in there at the end when we thought we were done with it. And then and then we get have supply chain major disruptions caused by the Russia invasion of Ukraine. So the uh, while um, we predicted SAP, since we decided to do it, we knew we were going to um, attempt to acquire Anadarko. We knew that was coming, but but we didn't see the pandemic coming, and we didn't in the 21st century see a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And and what's happened during all of that is, and what has amazed me is that our people didn't miss a step. And and I know I look around the globe and I talk to other CEOs and and a lot of people all around the world did amazing things during all of this. But but most of them hadn't had to go through those steps that we had gone through right before the pandemic. And so we had a, an organization that should have been pretty fatigued at the mm-hmm. time that the pandemic hit. But but what I found from our organization is I, I think they have the same motto that NASA does. And, and that motto is 
because failure is not an option. And for our team, when our team looks at a challenge and, and faces something that's that we've got to overcome, the question never is, can we do it? The question is, how are we going to do it? And, and I have come to realize that every time I've set a goal or objective for our team, they have exceeded my expectations. And, and so it's not just a team that, that refuses to fail. It's a team that refuses not to provide top-notch performance. And um, I've never been as impressed and, and personally very grateful to a team that has stepped up and has done what they've done. And I, I just, you know, am, am so impressed with the leadership throughout the organization and those that didn't know us, those that came over from Anadarko, jumped right in with us and, and started from day one contributing, adding value and becoming a part of, of our organization. So I think the for me, after having a, achieved and accomplished and worked through all of those things, I don't think there's anything that, that we're not going to be able to do. And I think that the good part of what we're doing now with the energy transition is that it's a positive thing, such a positive thing for all of our employees. They they recognize that we need to provide oil and gas to the world. We need to provide it in a better way than we've done it in the past. And we need to do things differently so that we can eliminate the, the footprint of carbon for ourselves and for others. And I think that's motivated our employees. I think they're excited about it. And Throughout the organization, both the, the, with the oil and gas, with the chemicals, midstream and marketing, those organizations supporting the low carbon ventures strategy and processes. It's, uh, it's been a great thing to see. Uh, it's and it's pulled people together. I believe it is exhausting when you when you relay that series of mm-hmm. events. And I had not thought about pre pandemic merger. <laughs> we're gonna merge. We're gonna all get to know each other. Never mind. You're all gonna go home for a year. You know, it's that's quite extraordinary. And in addition to the series of challenges that you just discussed and how your employees have risen to meet them, there's also this ever changing external expectations to interface with our communities, with non-traditional partners. And one thing I've observed because of the work I do, and I'm keenly interested in how oil and gas companies do this well, is that Oxy routinely will work with conservation groups or labor groups. We'll go into communities in novel ways. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about those interactions and with non-traditional allies? And, and what does it mean for the future of of Oxy and a carbon management company? I think it's it's made us so much uh, better to be open and to work with others and to, uh, our team has a unique ability to put themselves in the positions of the, the groups that we're interfacing with to understand the perspectives that they're dealing with and to understand what they view the challenges to be and to to begin to work with the from that concept and perspective and to work toward a a solution that helps us both and it's by allowing yourself to be open to those who may tell you they want you to go away that having the, the ability to sit there and listen to that and to understand what they really are, are meaning and what they're trying to drive toward I, I think our teams have developed that ability and and we started this a long time ago and and 
international locations where we didn't view ourselves to be the company that's going to go in and save Oman's oil industry or Colombia's oil industry or Abu Dhabi. We viewed ourselves to, to be getting the privilege to go into a country and to partner with a national oil company to deliver something that would be a win for us and a win for the company we're partnering with and the people of the country. And starting with that as a as an experience and then expanding it to how do we work with environmental groups to, to achieve what we need to achieve and how do we learn what we need to learn to, to be able to come up with a solution. And so our teams have uh, done a great job of finding ways to be better at what we do because we will we, we are open to listening and, and we will have those dialogues and we will make sure that we're trying to learn how to do things better than, than what we've done in the past. I really love the inherent humility in that approach, you know, that ultimately, particularly going forward, oil and gas companies or carbon management companies are going to have to be invited guests in communities um, or co-creators of whatever that community is going to become. So let me pivot a little bit to talk about some of the exciting things that I think you're doing, Vicki, and the, I get really excited about innovation that builds off traditional oil and gas skills because I think it's it's taking our 150 years of entrepreneurial spirit into the next 150 years. So one thing I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about is your director capture project in the Permian. I mean, director capture is this insane idea where we're going to take CO2 out of the air and then manage to get enough of it to sequester it subsurface. Um, talk about your role in it and how you're thinking about that project. Well, it's incredibly exciting that uh, we were partnering with Carbon Engineering on that. They uh, developed the uh, technology. They had built a pilot plant in uh, Canada to, to try to make it better. And the exciting thing about it is that it really has a lot of synergies with our chemicals business because to extract the CO2 out of the atmosphere, the first thing you have to do is push air through a contact tower. But within that contact tower, you have a liquid uh, called potassium hydroxide, which we are the largest marketer of in the United States, second largest in the world. So it's something that our chemicals business knows a lot about how to handle and how to make better. And then within the contact tower, you have to have PVC that, that causes this disruption that and diffusion that mixes the air with the potassium hydroxide to make it more efficient. And we make PVC too. And so um, having two of the major things that you're going to need in the facility and having experience with that, and then having the infrastructure in the Permian Basin, where once we pull that CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then we we want to do something with it, we can put it in oil reservoirs, we can put it in, in saline reservoirs, or we can convert it to products. And that's where our other partners come in to, to help us do some of those things. So it's um, the good thing about it is while it's something that's not hasn't been done on the scale that we want to do it, it um, all the components are used in some industrial way in today somewhere. So it's it's not uh, something that hasn't that that you have to wonder about whether it will will it work. It will work. The uh, question now is how efficient can we make it? We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. 
I love how these innovations that you're working in are all adjacent and building off of um, your core competencies and the skills of the business, because that's why the oil and gas industry is so powerful, because we can bring uh, energy transition at scale because we're there doing these things. I, I just love that. You can tell I get so excited about it. Okay. Another thing I'm really excited about is a sustainable aviation. My last guest runs Boeing's, uh, the venture capital firm that Boeing just uh, rolled out. And he got us pretty excited about the future of sustainable aviation, which I thought was one of those impossible to decarbonize sectors. So I'm learning every day. And then in my research, I learned that you were on United's first passenger flight for 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So talk about your role in sustainable aviation fuel and your work with United Airlines. Yeah, United is uh, is a great company. I have a lot of admiration for Scott uh, Kirby, the CEO. He's uh, he, he's one of those who has to the, the two C's, courage and commitment. And uh, he's really wanting to, to do something different than, uh, than some are doing it in that he doesn't want to buy CO2 offsets for his carbon uh, footprint to net, net that out. He truly wants to have fuel that is carbon free. And so uh, the way we partnered with him is he heard of, that we were building the direct air capture facility in the Permian. And what he wants to do is use the oil that we can generate from that captured CO2 and convert that to jet fuel. And through that uh, conversion to jet fuel, use the jet fuel for use in his planes. And so the way you make carbon neutral or, or carbon negative oil is it takes more CO2 injected into the reservoir than the reservoir, than the, uh, the barrels produced from that CO2 will emit when used. And so that's how why it's carbon neutral. I get so excited about carbon neutral and carbon negative oil because it's going to really challenge this narrative out there that some fuels are good and some fuels are bad. Like what we want is to reduce carbon emissions. And so this idea that we're going to be able to continue to use one of the most efficient, energy efficient, energy dense uh, fuels on the planet and continue uh, to use it and have it be carbon negative, it just upends this political battle we're in and allows us, the oil and gas industry, to say, we're here to to fuel the planet, to bring raise quality of life, and also um, to bring down carbon at the same time. So I love this partnership, another non-traditional cool partnership. You're also investing in several startups. Are there others that you can talk about um, falling into your net zero plans? Sure. Um, one is uh, Sembita, and Sembita is a company uh, here in Houston that's um, wanting to convert CO2 to bioethylene. So they've done it in a lab, and we're working with them now to build a pilot plant to make it happen on a bigger scale. And if we can do that, then that means that we could take the bioethylene and use it in our chemical plants to generate the products that we generate there. So bioethylene is important. It's exciting. Another um, company is Lancetech. We're working with Lancetech to convert CO2 to um, to fuels. And so they also have some other products that they want to use CO2 for in the future. So these are all exciting companies that are doing amazing things and just need the opportunity to partner with someone that can make it happen for them. Right. That can help bring these interesting solutions to scale. So I want to ask a difficult question. So much innovation, so much new thinking. How do you balance that with the quarter to quarter expectations to deliver with your day-to-day operational priorities? How do you balance the, the draws of the future with the burdens of the present? That is a challenge that we must get right. 
And that's because we have to deliver value to our shareholders. And so the oil and gas business, our chemicals businesses, our midstream and marketing business, all of those need to deliver and to, to uh, deliver at a very high level. And they're, they're doing that today. So we can't lose focus on the base business. Great. So I really do understand this balance that we have to get right between the present and future. And yet at the same time, all these pressures require our company cultures to evolve. What do you think are components of company cultures um, across the industry that will need to change as we evolve with the energy transition? I think one of the, the culture needs to be, one of the changes has to be that we have to empower our employees to make decisions uh, quicker and make decisions that are within their area of expertise and focus. Because an example of um, something that we just started doing here recently is with respect to methane, we've never really said that we want our operations to become methane-free. It's like zero methane emissions. But we accepted that challenge as a part of the oil and gas climate initiative and set that as a goal for ourselves. And what impressed me is that all we had to do was start talking about that. And as we started talking about that, our employees started coming up with better ways to to do our business and some other ideas on how to further reduce our methane emissions. And so I think it's, it's communicating to the employees what we need to accomplish and empowering them to go out and do the things that we that we need to do to accomplish that. So it's it's engagement in helping our employees to understand what the challenges are, what the problems are, what we need to achieve, but staying out of the way and la- allowing them to do what they do best. And that is to go fix it in a way that, that only they can do it. Um, and, and certainly that they can do in a better way than anybody else. And, and so the-, the culture has to be one where the, the employee base is informed, engaged, Engaged and empowered. I love that there's like this uh, empowerment and this accountability that creates new spaces for employees to bring solutions to the table. Can you talk a little bit? I, I'm finding as an ongoing theme in this idea of empowering the employees is also making sure that we have inclusive workplaces where diversity and equity are explicitly addressed. How do you work DEI into your company culture um, and how does it affect this work on the transition? Well, I will say that I thought we were okay as an organization. And I thought that that because of the fact that we've worked in so many places internationally, we have international people throughout our organization. And so we have a lot of diverse people. But what I didn't realize until about a year ago, we started going deeper into how our organization was feeling around diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And the diversity part's there, but the inclusion and belonging part wasn't where it needed to be. And one of the shocking stories to me was when our HR group had a big call with with the HR people around the world, and they started sharing stories. And I started learning more and more about the things that our employees face in their day-to-day lives that I thought was not happening to them. But daily people are still facing challenges because of their race, their gender, or their ethnicity, challenges that, that they shouldn't face. And so we realized that we had a lot, a lot of work we needed to do internally. We started uh, ramping that up with a diversity, inclusion, and belonging day where we shared globally some, some lessons and some just interaction stories, games even, to, to help people learn more about each other and to learn more about what the challenges are. And that laid a foundation for us to start putting into place some processes and procedures 
procedures internally to start trying to amp up our awareness and to try to become more focused on the unconscious biases that exist throughout our organization that every one of us have. And um, so I was I was surprised at some of the biases I have. I'll just give you an example. I took my Jeep to the dealership to get it worked on. And when I pulled up in my Jeep, this lady walked over to me and she said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I need to talk to the mechanic because I have a problem with my Jeep. She said, I'm the mechanic here. So here I am doing this. So I had a bias. And uh, it's shocking when you really start looking at how you are thinking every day in every situation and how we need to change things and address things differently. So we we now have a person in our organization, Angela Johnson, who's leading this effort, and she has incredible passion. She's built a team. We have an advocacy board now. But the most important part of what she's done is create a group of ambassadors that are spread throughout the organization. And the ambassadors are coming up with the ideas on how to do things better. And what we're doing is from the perspective of bringing people in and ensuring that we prepare people, diverse people for the next layers up, we're trying to make sure that we advance that and have people better prepared to take on uh, greater roles while the ambassadors are helping us to identify the things that we can do better and the ways that that we can help advance uh, people within our organization. This leadership work is so wide and so deep that we have to do. I mean, we're talking about energy transition work. And at the same time, your company is working deeply on inclusion and belonging, which is effective because you as a CEO are doing your own. I mean, we each have to show up in different ways to create these inclusive community of employees that can be ready for the energy transition. It's it's a lot. And in addition to all that, you have low carbon ventures. <laughs> so you're, you're bringing in probably all kinds of um, new diverse perspectives. I'm interested, again, back to this idea of balancing operations of today with the investments of tomorrow. How do you think about uh, which investment priorities to make? How to select what to invest in? How do you do that within your low carbon ventures? So that's um, another big challenge. Capital allocation is the most important thing that, that we do because what we do today impacts us for decades to come. Uh, so these decisions have to be made very thoughtfully and have to be made with uh, with a focus on ensuring that we deliver returns and deliver value. So what we're doing on the um, low carbon venture side is we are um, we have a strategy to first prove up our technologies. And as we prove up our technologies, uh, we will look at alternative ways of how we finance the advancement of the infrastructure that we need to to deliver the CO2 and extract the CO2. And so that that's going to take the innovation that I talked about earlier. And it's going to take not only the innovation, but the flexibility that I talked about to change courses when we need to because some of the ways that we talked about early on on how to finance the low carbon ventures is different today than what we talked about before, because the this is a new industry. It's an evolving industry and the landscape is rapidly changing. And so if, if we hadn't had the flexibility to pivot off some of our early decisions to where we are today, 
we might have made a mistake around how to finance it. So we're we're keeping our options open for as long as we can until the technology is better appreciated and more proven. And then we'll do some things around ensuring that we get the financing needed to minimize our costs while maximizing our value. And so the core business capital allocation stays the same as we were doing it. The low carbon venture uh, capital allocation will be evolving over time. Mm, and it sounds like that that financing flexibility is really important. Is there any other big lesson you learned as you've been engaging in your decarbonization work? You know, the part of the lessons we've learned is that it, it is really hard to be on the leading edge uh, to help develop an industry. Uh, but it's fun to, to work with people who have the same commitment that we work with. And so what's important early on is to try to be sure that you're not spinning your wheels with people who don't have that passion and commitment. And rather than that, that you that you look for people that do. For example, our engineering and construction contractor, Worley, what we did is we didn't go out and, and just ask for bids blindly and just take the, the low bid. What we did is we made sure that we, we talked to the CEOs and the chairman of the boards of the companies that we were considering uh, for um, for this contractor, and what we wanted to do is make sure that they didn't want to build a one-off. That mm. they were they were really in this to make it work over time and to make it the very first start of construction to make it the best that it could be and to try to find ways to innovate. So Worley has had a lot of innovation classes and projects and initiatives within their organization to work on direct air capture. Their teams have the same passion about making it work that our teams do. And uh, for this energy transition, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people who can look beyond that first you know, generation plant or the second generation and look to what, where do we have to be and how soon can we get there and what's it going to take to make that happen. And that those those companies that are that innovative and that committed, they're who we want to work with. And sometimes they're it's hard to tell early on. Uh, you have to you have to get into it a little bit too before you can realize that. It's really interesting. It continues some of these things we started with, almost of non-traditional partnerships, that there has to be this alignment and commitment to a shared future. It's not just executing the contract to maximize profit. There has to be an understanding we're going somewhere together and it's going to take some sacrifice, some compromise uh, to get there. Um, I love this theme of essentially us being uh, intertwined with all these partners out there in co-creating this energy future. Vicki, I just want to leave us with a couple questions that are more personal in nature so we can get to know you. One of the articles that really touched me that I read about you was about your meeting with the Pope in 2018. And I'm just curious that, you know, four years have passed that you've been engaging directly on climate. How's your thinking? How's your thinking and leadership changed? And what moves you to keep to keep doing this, this very difficult work that, that you're in? I would say my energy and passion around it has, has just continued to grow. Uh, going to the Vatican, uh, the the title of that um, that summit that we had at the Vatican was the I think it, what did we call it the end of fossil fuels or transitioning out of fossil fuels it was something like that. So again, that's where some people might have turned that down and some people did turn that down, but. I think I was the only U.S. oil and gas company CEO that went and stayed for the whole forum. And I went because I wanted to hear the other side. I wanted to interact with others. And, and I can tell you that the uh, one of the cardinals that I met at the Vatican and the Pope himself, it was uh, it was a great experience because you, you learn that others really care about 
the planet, really want to do the right thing, but just don't understand that we in the oil and gas industry can be a part of it. We can be a part of the solution. And what I've learned is we have to be patient with that message. Not everybody's going to get it right away. And it's going to take a while before people will get it. I think the example of Europe now and the things that they're facing, the the lack of energy security. Uh, I think now it's beginning to resonate with people that the oil and gas companies need to be a part of making this transition work because we need to ensure that we can get through the transition and that we don't leave people behind and that we don't cause people to die in places where there are resources that could have helped them have a better life. And that's, to me, that's impacted me personally. And I, I have a mission and my mission is to over and over and over again, tell our story, tell a patient and tell it with with the passion that I have around it. And it's it's to help those that just don't understand it. It's if they understood it, they would get it and they would help. And so now it's it's just a, a matter of making sure that we can get the message out. Well, and I love that because uh, we have a, probably a once in a generational opportunity because of uh, energy prices and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where there is a public who is more receptive to having an oil and gas industry that can accelerate climate change while building prosperity and energy security, accelerate addressing climate change while addressing geopolitics and security. And I think that is so important. And I, I love that you recognize that we have we do have to do that through connections, through interpersonal connections, because otherwise it just sounds like um, grandstanding. But when you're listening and participating and building trust and rapport, there's a room, a, a space right now for us to have these conversations. So Vicky, last question for you. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing what our, our teams can can do this year. It's um, we've we've now come through um, a lot of challenges and we're in a good place now. We've uh, we've been able to strengthen our balance sheet again. We're we're now in a position to start to excel. We're in a we're in position right now to to be able to do a lot of the things that um, that we had expected to to do. Now that we're um, we're through this pandemic, or at least through it enough that, uh, that we can start focusing more on getting our employees back to the environment that, that they excel in. And in whatever way that is, that's going to be uh, for us a balanced work program where our employees are in the office three days a week and getting the opportunity to spend more time with their families, getting the opportunity to have uh, more flexible work hours. And so I think that we and our employees will be in better shape and and I think energized for the rest of this year and going into next year. Well, Vicki, I'm looking forward to seeing how Oxy, uh, your team, uh, your leadership, how you participate in producing the cleanest molecules on earth that allow us to create global energy security and and accelerate addressing climate change. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. All right. Thank you. So for today, thanks so much to Vicki Holub for taking time to share her worldview with us. I really loved the part at the end about um, her meeting with the Pope and how important it is to go to meetings, even called something like the end of fossil fuels. That's how we start new conversations and change minds and win hearts. Um, I'd like to hear what you found interesting. So please um, take a moment and you can reach out to us at energythinks.com. If you enjoy what you're hearing, rate us. It helps other people in the oil and gas industry find us. I'd like to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for doing all the things that makes energy things possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler wishing you and yours happiness, 
prosperity and good health.